Lord, we need you. We need you. Help us to see from your word today how much we do need you. Help us to see our inadequacy compared to Christ's sufficiency. Warm our hearts today with the fire of the gospel that if we have somehow grown cold that by seeing Christ today we would be warmed again that we would be uh, just renewed in our minds to seek you to know you and to go into the world with the gospel we pray in Christ's name Amen so Let's uh, begin today with uh, a little bit of a review of where we've been so we can be prepared for where we're going. Uh, And before uh, we do that, I do want to mention that this series on on depression is turning into something a little bit longer than I had first thought. Not much longer, a little bit longer. Um, And I originally was thinking four sermons, which would have concluded today, but I have at least two more to go, uh, and we're going to get a little bit of an uh, intermission here of sorts in this series uh, because um, we're going to be on a little bit of vacation here, and so you get to hear from some of the other men in the church preaching for the next couple of weeks, and so uh, you're going to have to kind of wait uh, to hear the conclusion of this for a few extra weeks. Um, So, as I said, I think there's going to be two more after today, so Lord willing, the plan is a total of six at this point. Um, But I do want to give to you uh, our outline that we've been following to give you an idea of where we've been and where we're going. Um, And our outline is uh, a brief word on psychology, biblical definition of depression, the many occasions of depression, the cause of depression, how to identify depression, or we might call this symptoms of depression, the psychosomatic nature of depression, unbiblical responses to depression, how to counsel those who are depressed, and the cure to depression. And in addition to this outline that we've been following, uh, I want to mention two of our key definitions that we've talked about that you need to file away so you understand what we're talking about, and they are uh, uh, these are the uh, two definitions. We have the definition of depression, and I told you that I borrowed this, def- this definition, um, so this is not unique to me, but the definition is sorrow without hope. And then we have the cause of depression, which we identified last time as misplaced hope. So if Uh, If depression is sorrow without hope, that tells us a couple of things. It tells us, first of all, that sorrow in itself is not bad. We can have sorrow. All we're saying is we shouldn't have sorrow without hope. Or we might also use another word and say despair. We can be sorrowful without despair. Uh, In fact, we should be sorrowful without despair as Christians. And if um, depression is sorrow without hope, then here's what causes it, misplaced hope. 
It is simply that I took my hope, and instead of putting it on the object of Christ alone, I put my hope on something else. Maybe it's my reputation or my, uh, my bank account or uh, whatever it might be, fill in the blank there. And what you found out is that that is not a very good anchor for hope. And so it ended up causing depression or sorrow without hope or despair. The theme so far in our study has been centered around hope itself. So depression has something to do with hope, and uh, hopefully you can see that our cure is also going to involve something to do with, uh, with hope as well. Um, but before we get to that cure in the next few weeks, um, we have a few more things to hit on. And so the first one today is going to be, uh, as we continue our series outline, it is how to identify depression, or we might call this the symptoms of depression. And I, I actually almost, I tell you each week I kind of modify or consider modifying the outline. I almost remove this point altogether because there was so much overlap with the previous point that we saw that they're almost the same thing, but I decided to keep it anyways. The point that this could overlap on is the many occasions of depression, all of the uh, things that might pull out or uh, cause us or reveal that we have depression. Um, and so there's a lot of overlap here, but I, I did think it would be helpful to put a separate point here. Um, I also want to just say one more thing before we look at these. We're only going to look at three of them. Um, and what I want to say is that these symptoms may not necessarily mean that someone, quote-unquote, has depression. Uh, these symptoms could be indicative of something else. But I'm just saying these are commonly associated with uh, common symptoms of depression. And the first one... At the risk of being redundant and yet needing to make sure this is totally clear, the first one is simply hopelessness. Depression is sorrow without hope. The cause of depression is misplaced hope. And thus, the primary symptom of depression is hopelessness. Because you put your hope in the wrong place, and now you don't have any hope because it wasn't able. It's like putting your hope in a leaky vessel, and it just all of it goes out. Um, the main verse that I want to see here is 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Now, you are familiar with 1 Thessalonians 4.13 because... It is frequently read at funerals, and the reason that it's read at funerals, it's read specifically at the funerals of believers to encourage our hearts that this person who's passed will rise again. We will see this person again. This is the context that we usually hear this verse in, and the verse is this. We do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, who've died, that you may not grieve or have sorrow as others do who have no hope. So according 
to this verse, who are the people, who, who is doing the grieving? Who's doing the grieving? It's the people who have no hope. That you may not grieve as others do. Who are those others that are grieving? It's the ones who have no hope. Those who have no hope are the ones in this verse grieving. Those who have no hope are the ones who are sad, right? Now, notice specifically that Paul is not condemning people who grieve in general. He's not saying that grief is a bad thing. He's condemning a specific variety of grief, a specific kind of grief. It is the kind of grief that others do. Don't grieve as others do. You can grieve this way, but don't grieve as others do. Don't grieve in that kind of a grief, that type of a grief, that variety, that particular brand of grief. Don't do that one. It's okay to grieve this way, but not this way. Um, this kind of grief, the brand of grief that he's saying don't do, that kind of grief is characteristic of people who have what? No hope, which are unbelievers. So what is grief without hope? Well, it's the same thing as sorrow without hope. It's the same thing as despair, or it's what we've been calling depression. Don't grieve without hope. Don't do that. You can do the other kind of grief, but don't do the grieving without the hope. Now, it's a little bit, uh, as I already mentioned here, redundant to point this out, but let's, let's go through this anyways. What is depression? It's sorrow or grief without hope. What is that? Hopelessness. And even though there's a little bit of redundancy here, well, that makes sense. Um, I want to be abundantly clear so that we can I, identify this. Um, consider Hebrews 12 and verse 3. Um, consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted or hopeless. Psalm 30, 39 and verse 7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. So as Christians, we understand that the object of our hope is supposed to be the Lord himself. And when we don't do that, when we don't put our hope in the Lord alone, then we have a symptom that comes out, and the symptom is hopelessness. And we can see this in a thousand areas. We are hopeless in a thousand different ways. Um, because of our misplaced hope. And this brings us, and in, in, in one of the ways, this is our second point, but technically we could really put this as a sub-point underneath it, because this is one of the ways in which we express hopelessness. And, and our second point is this, misrepresenting reality. So we're talking about symptoms of depression. Number one is hopelessness. Number two is misrepresenting reality. This is a big one. And if you don't understand where we're going with this, hopefully it'll be clear in just a moment. Depressed people 
have a knack at misrepresenting reality. They see reality through colored lenses so that they're not seeing it clearly. Now, way back in the 17th century, Richard Baxter saw this, observed it, and wrote about it. And uh, I'm going to paraphrase his statement um, because of the uh, one or two years of English that has uh, transpired since that day. And as always, I can give you the original quote if you would rather have that. But this is uh, the John Marino paraphrase here. He says this, Depression clouds clouds reason so that a man's judgment is corrupted and cannot be trusted. A man who is troubled in his mind, and this is the key phrase here, perceives things not as they are, but as his passion represents them. And thus his judgment is perverted and usually false. Too much sorrow prevents a man from discipling or disciplining his thoughts. And undisciplined thoughts are carried away by grief. It is easier to keep the leaves on a tree still in a storm than for them to keep calm thoughts. Reason has no power against the stream of their troubled thoughts. You probably experienced that. It doesn't matter how reasonable you are. It doesn't change the distortion going on in the mind. So what are some examples of this? Well, first of all, watch out for these two words, okay? Always and never, okay? Particularly spouses, always and never. He never shows me that he loves me. She is always rude to me. Do you ever use those words? Is it true that you are always rude? Some of you are smirking, and I won't tell anyone else who's smirking. Is it true? Is that really and entirely, completely, honestly true that you are always rude. You never show me that you love me, or whatever it might be. A wise counselor will ask this simple question. Is that true? Is it true? Do you know what it is called when you say, he never buys me flowers, or whatever, when it's actually more like he rarely buys me flowers. Do you know what it, what it is when you say he never does this, when it's actually he rarely does this? There's a verse on this, actually, and it's from Exodus chapter 20 and verse 16, and it says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's called lying. We get away with more lies in our exaggeration than anything else, and I'm actually calling us to repent of that to repent of our lying in that way, because it's still a lie. Now, secular psychologists, and we've looked at some of the things that secular psychologists say and compared them to the Bible. Uh, Secular psychologists have a, a word for this, or two words for this. They call it cognitive distortions. 
And the Bible's word is simpler. It's just lying, okay? <laughs> There's a difference there. What I'm telling us to do is to be careful about exaggeration. I'm not saying never use exaggeration, because actually, we probably all know that it's a tool that can be used wisely, right? We all know that there's something helpful in exaggerating. Sometimes we use it to make a point. Sometimes we use it for humor. And, you know, you use an exaggeration and everybody laughs because they know that you're not being literally true. Um, so, you know, an example, you know, boy, it has rained nonstop this spring. Okay. If I were to say that, I'm exaggerating, right? I'm not saying it literally, actually has been raining 24-7 this whole spring. But you understand that. You know from the context that I'm using exaggeration, and I'm using it to make a point. I'm exaggerating the situation to say it's rained a lot this spring. Um, But if the context is to intentionally misrepresent reality, then that's lying. And people use this as a wedge in relationships. Again, the always and never statements They use it as a wedge in relationships in a way that's dishonest. You never do this. You always do that. That, that, That's not funny. You're not laughing when you're having that conversation. It's actually something that's used to kind of poke and, and prod somebody. That's where we ought not to be using this kind of exaggeration. Um. Now, all of us will confess, I think, that we have done this somewhere, somehow in our lives. However, it is a character trait that is especially true of the depressed. I'm going to give an example of this. Do you remember Elijah? We've looked at this example before. And what happened to Elijah? He's being pursued, and he... We, told, we said that he, God gave him you know, a sandwich and a nap so that he could recover from this. But what was his cognitive distortion? Or we might say, what was his lie? And it's given to us in verse 14 of 1 Kings 19. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. I am the only follower of Yahweh left. Is that true? No, that is not true. He's depressed. We already saw that a few weeks ago. And now he is beginning to distort reality. Woe is me, I'm the only, you know, and in one way, it's almost kind of like a self-righteous kind of thing. Look at how righteous I am. Look at what I've done. Look, look at my great deeds. I'm the only one. Now, what does God do? God is a God of truth. God loves the truth because he is truth. And so what does God do? He corrects this. And so in verse 18... Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. You're wrong, Elijah. There's 7,000 who've not bowed the knee to Baal. And so he corrects this 
particular uh, lie on Elijah's part. In a counseling situation, we might hear somebody say something like this, I'm the only Christian left in my community or whatever it might be. And we would be wise to ask this question. Put this question in your toolbox, okay? Is that true? Is that true? In fact, we should be very quick to ask that question. Uh, Philip Graham Ryken says this. Spiritual depression often includes an element of self-pity. We exaggerate our troubles, seeing them as bigger than they really are. We insist that the problems of life are so overwhelming that they cannot be solved. Rather than looking to God and seeing his superior strength and mighty grace, we imagine that our troubles are beyond any remedy. By making our problems seem bigger than they really are, and by making God smaller than he actually is, we convince ourselves that our situation is pitiful or hopeless. And, of course, we fall into despair. In the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, which I've quoted a couple times in this study, the authors have a section in the back that deals with cognitive distortions. Okay? Now, I'm going to tell you that this is not coming from a Christian worldview. Okay? This is coming from secular psychology. Um, but I wanted to read some of these to you because there was some insight in just observing some of these things that we do. I'm not endorsing all of it, but I just want to read to you some of these. They say that these are cognitive distortions. Mind reading. You assume that you know what people think without having sufficient evidence of their thoughts. He thinks I'm a loser. Or, and I'm just quoting what they're saying here, okay? Fortune telling is one that they say is a cognitive distortion. You predict the future negatively. Things will get worse or there's danger ahead. I'll fail that exam or I won't get the job. Um, discounting positives. You claim that the positive things you or others do are trivial. That's what wives are supposed to do, so it doesn't count when she's nice to me. Or those successes were easy, so they don't matter. Negative filtering. You, almost, you focus almost exclusively on the negatives and seldom notice the positives. Look at all the people who don't like me. Overgeneralizing. You perceive a global pattern of negatives on the basis of a single incident. This generally happens to me. I seem to fail a lot of things. By the way, this happens a lot in our culture today. Our, our culture finds one news story, and they make it sound like that happens everywhere, when it might just be one news story. Um, dichotomous thinking. You view events or people in all or nothing terms. I'll get rejected by everyone or it was a complete waste of time. Uh, shoulds, you interpret events in terms of how things should be rather than simply focusing on what is. I should do well. If I don't, then I'm a failure. Blaming, you focus on the other person as a source of your negative feelings, and you refuse to take responsibility for changing yourself. She's to blame for the way I feel now, or my parents caused all my problems. Again, our culture does this a lot. Nothing you do is your fault. It is all somebody else's fault or it's society's fault. And again, I'm, I'm not endorsing every one of these statements, but I'm saying in God's common grace, some of this stuff is helpful. Um, we see it in our own culture today. What if? You keep asking a series of questions about what if something happens and you fail to be satisfied with any of the answers. Yeah, but what if I get anxious? Or what if I can't catch my breath? What if I, you know, make a fool of myself or, you know, whatever? Um, 
emotional reasoning, you let your feelings guide your interpretation of reality. I feel depressed, therefore my marriage is not working out. Um, and that's a, there's more, but I, that's, that's all I'm going to put up here for now. Now, what I want to uh, say about this is that the world is calling this a cognitive distortion. And the world's cure to this is, as I mentioned last time, less and less medication and more and more CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. And um, God's answer to this is different. So God's answer is not go pursue medication or go pursue cognitive behavioral therapy. God's answer is different. What is God's answer to this? Three words. Renew your mind. Renew your mind. Renew your mind. Okay? Romans 12 and verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what is the mechanism of transformation? Renewal of your mind. Ephesians 4.23. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is basically kind of like the closest secular version to renewing your mind. And the big difference, there's a big difference here, the big difference between the world's strategy to fix cognitive distortions, I'm putting that in quotes if you're listening to this, the the, um, the big difference between CBT and renewing your mind, and there are other differences, but the main one is the content. CBT is not taking you to the word. Renewing your mind is taking you to the word. And so if you are going to correct false thoughts and you're going to replace them with true thoughts, then where do we go to get those true thoughts? The word, right? It is the word of God. And so when you ask, I told you to put this phrase in your toolbox, what is true? When you are talking with somebody else or even talking to your own soul, counseling your own soul, and you ask the question, what is true? The answer to that question comes from reflecting on the word of God. Where do I go? I got to dig through the word of God to find out what is true. So CBT leaves out the word the very premise of it is the word is insufficient. The the very foundation of it is the word is not needed. And any answer to our problems that says the word is not sufficient has no hope by default. The world is creating a system with no hope. And this is why we need the word. Again, the solution is to ask yourself, what is true? That one little question, what is true or is that true, 
has helped many a Christian out of a tough bind. Your perceptions, your perceptions and your intuitions about reality are not always right. And as offensive as this may be, you are wrong many times. And I'm wrong many times. It is the word of God where the truth is at. Your perceptions and your intuitions are not always right. And therefore, your perceptions and your intuitions should not always be affirmed by others. In fact, they should be called out by others many times. You're thinking wrong. Repent of that wrong thought and come to Christ and think his thoughts after him. Our, our culture teaches you that your perceptions and your intuitions are always right. That is what our culture teaches us. I want to repeat this again. Our culture tells us that your intuitions and your perceptions are always right. That belief is the premise of every single Disney movie ever created. I'm serious. Now, I'm not saying you can't watch Disney movies. You should be discerning, okay? But that's the premise. What, what Disney movie does not have as the moral of the story, follow your heart? That's every single Disney movie. And by the way, many, many other movies outside of Disney movies as well. You, you, th- you think that doesn't have an impact on us? You, you think that, that watching movie after movie after movie, movies educate us? That they are teaching us lessons. You, you think that, oh, that's just kids' stuff and you grow out of that, okay? It is adults that are saying, believe all women. That is not true. You should not believe all anybody except for God alone. And this is the result of thinking this way, that your intuitions and your feelings and your perceptions are always right. They are not And they oftentimes need to be called out. Remember Philippians 4. Listen. Put this next to the next Disney movie that you watch. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What is true? Is that true? And of course we know that this is accomplished through prayer, through reading the Word of God, and through, as we've been seeing at the 9 a.m. service, meditation. And Lord willing, I do, once we get to the cure of depression, I want to expand this a little bit more. But I want to just suffice it to say for now is we, we fight this. We fight these wrong thoughts through meditating on the word of God, the truth. It's the content of that message. 
and again, we'll explore that a little bit more. I want to take you to the third symptom of depression, and that is guilt. Um, I won't spend too much time on this one because we saw it a little bit in a little bit of a different form a couple weeks ago. And that is we said that depression misunderstands a handful of things. We said depression misunderstands the atonement, that depression misunderstands faith, and depression misunderstands grace. If you misunderstand faith, atonement, and grace, then what kind of a life are you going to live? A guilty life. A shameful life. Why? Because you're saying the cure is something other than God says the cure is. If you are depressed and you say that, and you misunderstand atonement, what's the atonement? What What did we say about that? Once for all. Does Jesus have to be re-sacrificed again because the first sacrifice was not sufficient. What does Hebrews say? Once for all. At right today, right now, across the globe, there are Roman Catholics re-sacrificing, quote-unquote, Jesus Christ. That's what the Mass is. It is a re-sacrifice of Christ. It is, he is coming down again to be sacrificed for the sins of man. Now, we can easily point that out and say, boy, that's... But we try to atone for our own sin. And if I just do this, we do it through penance. Uh, So we called this last time Protestant purgatory. Uh... Let's, let's add another phrase in here, Protestant penance, okay? If I just jump through these hoops, then my sin will be atoned for. You're denying the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. Now, if that's true, then what kind of a life are you living? A life full of guilt, which is our point right now. So the person who's depressed lives a life of guilt. And by the way, let me just encourage you, if that's you, what do you need to meditate on? The atonement? Grace and faith. You need to know that salvation is of God's grace. And you, have, you don't understand the gospel if you are living a guilt-filled life as a Christian. Why? Because th- this guilt-ridden life is the natural outcome of trying to take care of your own sin. You're trying to take care of it yourself without Christ. And, of course, guilt can be internalized or expressed externally. You might see someone displaying their guilt. They might keep it a secret. Um, One possible indicator that someone is experiencing guilt, this is not necessarily an indicator, but it could be, is that they are a perfectionist. Perfectionism is the human attempt to order life without God. I'm going to perfect everything because I don't need God. Or another indicator that they might be having guilt is that they constantly ask you for reassurance. You find this characteristic in your own life? Constantly, constantly asking for reassurance in something. 
that could be a sign that maybe you're experiencing this kind of guilt. They second-guess everything because they're never sure that their sins are really taken care of. I'm not sure this was enough. Do you, you think this was enough that I did this? <laughs> this brings us to our next point, which is this. So those were just three um, symptoms of depression, and of course there are more, but, but we could go on for a long time. Uh, so symptoms of depression, now psychosomatic nature of depression. Uh, so for starters, what in the world am I talking about, and uh, why? what does this even mean? The word psychosomatic simply means there is a connection between what? Anybody know? Mind and body, okay. Psychosomatic, there is a connection there between your mind and your body. So we all know this intuitively. Mental stress can affect your body, okay? So how many of you have ever sat down and watched a movie and you were perfectly and completely safe in your home, there was no danger at all, and you got to the suspenseful part, and your heart starts pounding. Okay? You ever experienced that? Okay? That is psychosomatic. There is no physical reason why your body should be responding that way. You weren't running a marathon. You weren't, uh, you know, running from a threat. You weren't bicycling. You weren't mountain climbing. You were simply watching a movie. Something mentally happened that caused your body to respond in that way. Psychosomatic connection between your mind and your body. Um, and they're all kind of, we, we could probably go on for a very long time about this. Liars oftentimes become sweaty or their heart begins to race. Um, there are mental things that affect the body, so ulcers, high blood pressure, IBS, those are illnesses that are caused by the way that you mentally handle stress. Um, now, I want to show you that the Bible makes this connection, okay? Um, we're not just going on experience here. We're giving some examples, and now we're going to see how the Bible connects this. And actually, by the way, this makes a lot of sense because the Bible teaches that we are made up of two parts, spirit and body. And so it would make sense that in God's world, those things affect one another. Now, I'm not going to get into dichotomy or trichotomy. I don't think that the Bible teaches three-part, which is body, soul, and spirit. I think there's two-part, body and soul or spirit. Um, And actually, by the way, um, maybe this is a small rabbit trail, but Christians who give more credit to secular psychology have a tendency to believe in trichotomy in three parts. And the reasoning goes that that doctors are authoritative over the physical, so you don't need the Bible for that, and psychologists are authoritative over the spirit or the mind, and so you don't need the Bible for that, and then the Bible is authoritative over the soul. And so by putting it into three pieces, now the Bible only speaks to this one area and there's no authority anywhere else. I think there are biblical reasons to not understand it as three parts, 
but only as two parts. But that's probably going a little bit further than we intended for this message today. Um, but I, what I want to show you is the psychosomatic connection here. So Psalm 31.10. My life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. My strength, physical, fails because of my iniquity, spiritual. You see the connection here? Psychosomatic nature. It's a connection between the body and the spirit. And you see, he even goes further and says, and my bones waste away. Okay, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. Actually, no, not that one. Psalm 14, 30. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy, sin, makes the bones rot. Physical effect. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine to 30. Talking about communion. Whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Sin causing physical consequences. Psalm 32, 3 through 4. When I kept silent, and, and this is David in Psalm 32, and when he says, when I kept silent, he means he wasn't repenting. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. He refused to repent, and there's a physical consequence to that. Psalm 38 and verse 3. Day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up because he refused to repent. Um. And then, uh, no, this is Psalm 38. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. Psychosomatic. Body affected by spirit. Now, notice in particular, we're saying there's a body-soul connection. Notice specifically that Proverbs 17 makes this connection in the topic we're talking about, which is depression. Okay, Psalm seventeen twenty two, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit or a depressed spirit dries up the bones. See the connection between depression and a physical consequence. If you have a despairing spirit, a sorrowing without hope spirit, a depressed spirit, your bones are dried up. There's a physical consequence to that. This is, this is a basic reality in life. In fact, right from the very start of the Bible, Genesis 3.3, 3, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Spiritual disobedience leads to physical consequence. Right from Genesis 3. All throughout the Bible, again and again and again. The point that I want to make is that misplaced hope or depression can have an effect on your body. But I do want to say, so that you will not walk out of here and misrepresent what I'm saying, although you may do that anyways, (laughs) but to try my hardest, what I want to emphasize is that we avoid the error of Job's friends. Not every 
physical ailment is a direct result of your sin. You don't have the authority to walk up to someone who's sick and say, you have sinned and that's why this is coming and therefore you must repent. It could be, but it might not be. So a couple of verses here. John 9, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he's born blind, right? Avoid this. Because what does Jesus say? It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So be careful. Don't try to oversimplify it. Depression can affect the body, but not every sickness, not every illness, not every physical ailment is a direct result from sin. Now, of course, it's all a result of sin, generally speaking, but it's not because you specifically sin. It might be, it might not be. Now, just remember, Job's friends, and I want to show you how angry God was with Job's friends, because this was their thought. The only reason you're suffering is because of your sin, and that wasn't the case. It was a different reason, and this is how angry God was with Job. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. Does that sound familiar? What was the question I asked you to put in your toolbox? Is this true? You see how God cares about what's true? So the point is not to accuse people who are suffering of having sin. You're, you're stepping past boundaries if you do that. Now, I do think, and I would say, that every physical ailment should prompt us to ask ourselves, it's an occasion to ask yourself, is there any sin in my life that I need to repent of? We can ask that. We should ask that. But we need to be careful about drawing a direct causation there. Okay, so how do we land the plane today? Well, so far we've seen this. A brief word on psychology, biblical definition of depression, many occasions of depression, cause of depression, how to identify depression or symptoms of depression, and the psychosomatic nature of depression. We have a lot of ground to cover still, and so I want to give you something to jot down in between now and then if you haven't already done so. This is kind of the broad framework for where we've been so far. Depression defined, sorrow without hope. Cause of depression, misplaced hope. Symptom of depression, hopelessness. Keep those three things in your mind, write on a piece of paper, and we're going to basically pick up on this and continue to explore this as we get to, uh, Lord willing, the cure uh, to depression. Um. I do want to give you, I, I told you that each week I'm going to give you a little bit of hope so that you're not left hopeless. First uh, Peter 1, 3 through 5 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living what? Hope. You see our word there? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Who causes the hope? It's God. Who should your hope be in? God. There is no hope outside of Jesus Christ. There is no hope outside of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.12. Um, maybe. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. Who's the group of people that has no hope? The group of people that were what? Separated from Christ. See the connection there? The group of people without Christ is the same group of people without the hope. Which means that if I want the hope, I need to be connected to Christ. Separation from Christ equals no hope. Regeneration equals hope. We all need Christ. I have three points of application today. Application number one. When you are tempted to think undisciplined thoughts, renew your mind with the truth of God's word. Okay? This is what the world calls cognitive distortions. Um. Or what we, we said, there's a temptation to misrepresent reality, or a.k.a. lie. When you are tempted to think undisciplined thoughts, renew your mind with the truth of God's word. That's number one. And I have some verses in there, um, most of which we've already looked at. Number two, when you are tempted to lie by exaggerating your circumstances... Restrain your emotions and ask yourself the question, is this true? Put your emotions on a leash and make them obey truth. When you're tempted to lie by exaggerating your circumstances, restrain your emotions and ask yourself the question, is this true? Number three, when you're struggling through any kind of a trial, ask God to search you and reveal any sin and lead you to repentance. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. If you don't know Christ, don't leave here without that hope. He's enough. Thank you, Lord, for today, your grace, your faithfulness, and your kindness. Help us as we go to find rest and hope in Christ, we ask in his name. Amen.